Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text taken from the book of Philippians chapter 4. Again, give your ear to God's word. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. As far as the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for its purity and its clarity and its testimony to your son, Jesus. We pray that as we look into it today, that you would conform us into his image. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The passage that we're considering today ends with a very great and precious promise. A very great and precious promise. It says in verse 9, The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. What Christian is there for whom that is not a great desire? a deep longing to have a conscious awareness of the presence of God, the God of peace. This certainly was true of the Philippian Christians that Paul wrote this letter to originally. You remember some of the situation as we've studied the book from time to time that the Philippians found themselves in. We saw in chapter 1 that they were a persecuted group. Paul says that they had the same conflict that he did when he preached the gospel in that town, when, when he was thrown in prison and beaten and treated shamefully. The, the Philippians are undergoing persecution. They're a despised minority. We also saw that they were undergoing conflict from false teaching when we were in chapter 3. That's part of Paul's burden in writing to them, is to, is to correct the conflict that's beginning to crop up from the encroachment of the Judaizers who would undercut the truth of the gospel. And we saw even last time that we were in this book that they were dealing with internal strife, that there was conflict within the members. That's part of what Paul wrote to them about, to to try to bring peace between even the members of the church. So the, the church in Philippi was undergoing conflict in a lot of different directions. And that's something that we can all relate to. You may or may not be persecuted, but surely you may think of a place in your life where you have conflict within the church, within your family. You may think of of the church at large around the world as we watch news stories often about persecution, or we think about the way that our our freedoms are hampered even in our own country and the difficulties that that have been placed upon us. We have conflict. And the promise, the great promise that Paul gives at the end of this passage is that the God of peace will be with you. With all that we 
are dealing with as, as human beings since the fall, with all that the Philippians are dealing with, it's no wonder that as Paul comes to this section in the letter where he, he's giving them exhortations and how to live out the Christian life, he puts it all under the rubric of peace. And when Paul describes God as the God of peace, he's not saying that God is soft or that God is pillow-like. That's often our idea of peace if we divorce it from Scripture. No, Paul wrote to the Roman Christian saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Romans 16, verse 20. It is the God of peace in the book of Hebrews who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The God of peace is a God of power and a God of victory. Calling God the God of peace shows that he has victory over Satan. He has victory over death. Describing God as the God of peace means that he provides peace within the society of God's people, within his church, as it says in the book of Ephesians. For he, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace. Ultimately, the God of peace is the God who makes peace between himself and sinners. Calling God the God of peace describes his work of salvation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When the Lord Jesus appeared to the disciples in that locked upper room that first Easter evening, he showed them the marks on his hands and his side. And his greeting to them was, Peace be with you. The marks that Jesus showed them, that he had completed the atonement needed for the peace between God and man, And his greeting to them was peace. It wasn't an idle greeting. It was the announcement of a new reality. That God and man can be one again. The God of peace is the God of salvation. Who does away with our sin by the cross of his son. The God of peace, when Paul says that, in other words, is not just that you should think warm feelings when you feel about God. But God is the one who has all power over Satan and sin and death. He can reconcile man to man, and he can reconcile man to God. This is the God that is with us every day. Jesus said that he would send the Spirit to be with us, and yet so often the presence of God can become a creedal formula for us, something that we tick off in our box that we confess rather than a living reality, something that we experience individually and as a people. And we know we've slidden into this state when our zeal for the Lord and for the things of the Lord is flagging, and when we slide into sin that we would otherwise be held from if we knew that God was present with us. So how do we enjoy the presence of the God of peace. If, if this is a promise, 
how do we live this as a reality? Well, just as, as, just as we saw the last time we were in the book of Philippians, that God's peace would guard our hearts and minds as long as we took our circumstances to him in thankful prayer, Paul also lays out two conditions in our passage for our enjoyment of God's presence. Let's look at them. The first one is found in verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. God desires that as we give attention to the things that he approves of, it would shape our minds and our hearts to be like his. And for those who do so, he pledges his peaceful presence. Meditate on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul knows that the thoughts that occupy our minds and the images that capture our attention shape our characters and find expression in our behavior. As it says in the book of Proverbs, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart, your mind, those things that you think about, that you cherish, that you turn over in your thoughts. Jesus even confirmed for us in the Sermon on the Mount that the heart's secret thoughts are the fountain from which our outward actions flow. You remember he said that if anyone hates his brother, he is committing murder. That if anyone looks on a woman lustfully, he is committing adultery. He warns us not to covet in our heart our neighbor's possessions. Jesus also teaches us that it is within our mind, within our heart, our thoughts give rise to our actions. So what does Paul tell us to do? He says that we are to meditate, to prize, to value all that is true, all that conforms to reality, especially the truth of God in Christ. We're not to allow our minds to hear Satan's lies and whispers. We're to meditate on all that is noble, qualities in a person that call forth respect or awe or reverence. This is uh, the same word that Paul will use in other epistles as he describes church officers and leaders. This is one of the qualifications. They need to be noble. When, when others look at them, their life and their demeanor, their behavior are to call forth admiration, respect. We're to put our mind on those things which elevate our thoughts, which uh, teach us to look at those things that are noble. We're to meditate on all that accords with justice, that which conforms to God's standards of equity, all that is pure, free from defilement or pollution. That's often a, a religious word in the scriptures. It deals, it deals with things like sexual purity, but often it's, it's used for religious purity or purity and devotion to God, purity of life, all that is moral. We are to think about what is lovely, that which warrants and attracts admiration. 
and reputable. Those things which are worthy to be talked about. Paul says in Ephesians, there are some things that the Gentiles do that are so shameful as, as to not even mention them. Those are not the things that we are to put our mind on. We are to put our mind on those things that are reputable, of good report. Paul says, put your mind on this list. These are check marks for all of the thoughts that enter into your heart on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, second by second. What is going through your mind? Many of these words in this list actually are very uncommon in the New Testament, but are very common in classical lists of virtues and vices. So these are, these are words that Paul's audience in Philippi would have been familiar with, but not necessarily uh, with, they would have seen them outside of Christian context. Even, even the pagans published lists like this for things to aspire to and, and to meditate on. And so this has led some to believe that Paul is commending for our consideration the best in unbelieving society. But I don't, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. Even though, you know, all things considered, it's better to think about the good things in your unbelieving society than, than the sinful things or, or the wicked things. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here because he says at the end of verse 8, if there's anything, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, Paul knows that not everything in our culture, in our unbelieving world, will merit God's approval. And so he, he adjusts it slightly there at the end and calls us to exercise discernment. Also, we'll see in verse 9, he qualifies this list by giving his own life and his own um, practice as an example to qualify this list. The verb meditate means to reckon, to ponder, to give weight, value to, and let the resultant appraisal influence the way you live. So when it, when it says meditate, often in other translations you'll see think or ponder. Meditate is a good one because it's a very active word. And one of the, one of the, the big differences between what Paul is exhorting us to here and if you're like me in normal daily life is that you have thousands and thousands of thoughts that run through your head every day and most of them are passive. They simply enter into your mind or arise from your heart and we allow them in and we kick them around and then the moment passes and then another one comes and another one comes and we're not aware of what we're thinking about. You may, you may be able to go through uh, your, a whole portion of your day in your routine and look up and realize, oh, I'm in the next room. I've been thinking about things passively this whole time. But what Paul is exhorting us here to do is to, um, to really have some discernment in the thoughts that we both allow into our mind and the ones that we kick around over and over again. So where do we find such things as in this list to fill our minds with? Where do you go to think about what is true and noble and lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Well, the scriptures commend us a few places to meditate upon. One 
is Scripture itself. We might remember Psalm 1 that says, The blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Night and day. And he's blessed for it. But in particular, I want to commend to you in your thinking about these things, in your meditation on Scripture, I want to commend to you the Gospels. Think about the life, the ministry, the teachings, the miracles, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us, I am the truth and the way and the life. What is more noble than the teachings of our Lord? What is more lovely than His mercy on sinners? What is more praiseworthy than His desire to serve those who did not deserve His grace, but to come and die on the cross for our sins and to rise from the dead? Christ Himself is the standard of truth and honor and justice, purity, beauty, and praiseworthiness. And so I want to commend to you as, you as you think about meditating on Scripture, meditate primarily on Jesus and how you see Jesus in his life, in his teachings, in his miracles, in his actions, exemplify all of these things. This is a different kind of reading than most of us do when we do our Bible reading. We may have a certain set of chapters to get through or a certain section uh, that we, you know, this is our, our time where we read the Bible. But what, what we're asked to do here when he says meditate is to ponder and consider and slow down and think about. Look at Jesus. He exemplifies all of these things. The second place that Scripture gives us to meditate on is the lives of faithful saints who came before us. We could all think of Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the Hall of Faith. We, we are given Noah and Moses and Abraham and David, all of these people who likewise looked in faith to Christ and lived exemplary lives. We could even expand this category out to uh, Christian biographies. We could read about uh, missionaries and writers and pastors and preachers and wives and husbands who lived faithful lives to Jesus and ask yourself the same questions. What, what about their life is noble? What is praiseworthy? What is good? Turn their lives over in your minds as well. And the third place that Scripture gives us to meditate is the living examples of faithful people around us. That's what Paul's doing when he holds up himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples. In Hebrews 13, also says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see in verse 8, what Paul is really asking us to do is to consider and ponder the excellencies of God as reflected in his word, his world, and especially in his people. So go to these three places. Look to Christ week in and week out and see the truth in his teaching and the nobility of his manner, his mercy. Look at those who are faithful 
representations of him in his word and in history and look to one another where you are also modeling Christ like like shards of a mirror that reflect Jesus we see portions of Jesus's virtues in each other and where we see them we should ponder and meditate on those things of course there's also the inverse of this command we are not to fill our mind with all that is false or base or disreputable that doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge sin or sadness or trial in a fallen world but you need to remember that every cynic simply believes themselves to be a realist right every cynic says well i'm just a realist but that's not true the deepest reality there is is the triune god who is the god of love who came in the person of his son jesus to redeem fallen sinners by grace that is the deepest reality there is sin sadness trial difficulty all exist in the fallen world that we live in and you can't acknowledge those things but you must know that be deeper beyond all of these things is the triune god of love if we meditate on these things paul says we will experience the presence of the god of peace this week as uh, rachel and i were talking about this passage um, just throughout the week in in preparation and and hanging out in the evening you know i'm I'm telling her things that i'm seeing in the passage she came to me uh, yesterday and said you know i was kind of convicted by our discussions over the course of this week um, about how much time i spend listening to true 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 crime podcasts And I'm not saying, like, categorically those are wrong and you can't do that. But she said, you know, in our discussion, I was was kind of convicted about what I was filling my mind with. And so I just decided to put them away for a week. And I've been reading this biography of these seven different uh, Christian people. It's amazing how much more peace I have now than when I was filling my mind over and over again with... uh, with these mysteries and brutal murders. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, true, tri- true crime, y'all, that's hard. True crime podcasts are always wrong. But I am saying that Paul is telling us those things which, which occupy our minds that we allow in and tumble over and over again will affect us. And if we are meditating on the excellencies of Christ, as we see in his word and in his people, we will experience the presence of the God of peace. Romans chapter 8, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The second condition for experiencing an awareness of the presence of God is found in verse 9. It says this, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Things that you have learned 
and received sums up the message that Paul and Silas brought to Philippi. That message is the good news, the gospel, and the subject of it is Christ himself. His divine and human person and his redemptive work on the cross and in his resurrection. Paul reminded the Philippians of this in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where he tells us that even though Jesus was in the form of God, he was very God himself. He came and took on human flesh, taking the form of a servant and being obedient even to the point of death, death of the cross. And then that God highly exalted him, raised him from the dead, set him at his right hand and gave him the name that is above every name. We should all worship and adore Jesus for the grace that he has given us and forgiving our sins. That word received has the idea of basic Christian doctrine and practice. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says he received the words of institution for the Lord's Supper, also in 1 Corinthians. The Thessalonians received the basics of the moral Christian life from Paul, it says in 2 Thessalonians. Learning and receiving has to do with the very basics of doctrine and practice. To hear the gospel and to hear how the gospel is lived out. What they had heard and seen in Paul was the fruit of this message of God's grace as the Holy Spirit had caused the gospel to take root in his life. This is actually the same phrase that Paul uses in chapter 1, where he, said, where he says that the believers in Philippi had seen him suffer patiently while he was in the past, while in the past with them, and now heard from a distance that he still suffered. It was a reminder of what they had heard and seen in him, the way that his life displayed Christ and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. Paul's response to suffering, to imprisonment and to persecution in his own life provided a tangible pattern for the Philippians who were undergoing the same things and for us of our trials and our sufferings of various kinds. What they had heard and seen in Paul was a man who believed the gospel message and believed when he said, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That verb do in verse 9, these things do, has the idea of practicing repeatedly. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean uh, see it one time and do it one time. It means to practice repeatedly, almost to produce an artifact. You might think of a potter uh, at the wheel who produces bowls over and over and over again. It's that, it's that idea. And it is in the practicing of what we see in Christ and in others that we have the promise of the presence of the God of peace. Jesus even tells us in John 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He continues, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give. So what are, we, what are we to do 
with this. We are to ponder and practice. We are to think and do. When we read about those virtues in in verse 8, in the light of Paul's example, we realize that we are to take these things into our mind to turn them over in order that we might also practice them as we see them lived out in Jesus and in his scriptures and in his people. This is the difference between someone who knows Christ and the doctrines of Christ intellectually and someone who is a disciple. It's the difference between thinking, knowing these things intellectually and being a disciple. Jesus calls every single person whom he saves to come to himself. His call is the same. It's follow me. We're not saved by our attempts to pattern our lives after Jesus, but we are saved to attempt to pattern our life after Jesus. Really, this is the difference between someone who goes, who goes to a museum to enjoy paintings and someone who is learning to paint. This is the difference between what Paul is exhorting us to do here. Someone might go to a museum to enjoy a painting and someone might go to a museum and look at paintings as they're learning to paint. And now both of those people are going to enjoy the beauty and the praiseworthiness and the virtue and the excellencies of the painting that they're looking at. But for one of them, for the person who's simply there to satisfy a rainy Saturday afternoon or their intellectual curiosity, that's, that's all that it is. They will notice, yes, this painting is beautiful, and this is the year that it was produced, and here is the painter who produced it. But someone who is learning how to paint will study that same painting with a very different mindset. He will be looking at the master's work and asking himself, what did he do first? What did he do second? What, why did he use that particular kind of brushstroke? How did he produce that kind of effect? That's the idea that Paul has in mind when he says, meditate on these things. It's a very close reading of the life and the character of Jesus Christ in the scriptures and in his people. How did he show such mercy? Why did he say that first? What does it mean that he rose from the dead? What's, what's important about that? How is he so patient with his kids? Where did she get such devotion? How does he know so much Bible? That's meditating on the virtues of Christ as we see them in his people. It's very different than covering a certain amount of Bible every day, every week, every year, which is fine and good. It's good to stock your mind. But what we're exhorted to here is to pause and to consider with the purpose of then putting into practice. That person who's going to the museum to look at the painting so that they might also be a painter is going to take what they've learned and try to internalize the master's virtues and then produce it in a novel work. That's learning by imitation. That's the apostolic pattern of discipleship. What you have 
learned and received and heard and seen in me, these do. Secondary application of that is, like Paul, at some level we're all called to also say, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, these things do. It may be to our children. It's maybe to other members in the church. But all of us are called to imitate Christ. And we're all called to look at those who imitate Christ and see how we might do the same in our own lives. We're often afraid to say something like what Paul says here, or what he tells the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ, because we realize how short we come, how, how poor our imitation is, how much sin is still in our own life. We're not perfect. And yet, perfection is not what's required. Paul even says in chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the requirement to say what you have learned and seen and heard and received in me, these things do. To be a quick repenter, to be someone who is constantly maturing, moving forward in their imitation of Christ. This is the apostolic pattern of discipleship. And the promise, if we do these two things, is great. The promise is that the God of peace will be with you. Jesus is always present with us by his Spirit. Jesus told us that he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us and to live in us. He is the down payment, our guarantee of future glory. And yet, as we fill our minds with all things that are true and noble, pure, virtuous, praiseworthy, as we consider the excellencies of Christ in his person, in his work, in his his resurrection and his death, his atonement for us, as we consider the excellencies of those who have faith in him and we seek to practice them ourselves, we will know the presence of the God of peace, the God who provides power and victory over Satan and sin and death, the one who provides forgiveness and reconciliation amongst ourselves, the God who atones for our sins and gives us lasting peace with him. It's a great promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of peace, that you in your Son have crushed the head of Satan, that you have put away our sin, that you have united all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Lord, we pray that as we fill our minds day in and day out, you would give us grace to meditate on him, to know his excellencies, and to pattern our lives after him, that we may know your presence within ourselves and among ourselves for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.